Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bo Nilsson. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and the coordinator of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. I'm here today with Olle Turnqvist, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Development Research at the University of Oslo. Professor Turnqvist is a leading scholar of democratization in the Global South and has also worked extensively on social democratic development in a comparative perspective. He joins us today to discuss his recent book titled In Search of New Social Democracy, Insights from the South, Implications for the North. The book was published by Seth Bloomsbury earlier this fall. Welcome, Olle, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Olle, when we sat down to talk about your book recently, you called this your end book. Why is that? Well, it's, it's, it's simple. When one reaches the ultimate retirement age in Scandinavia, in Norway, it's 70. One can't hold on to a tenured position such as professor. That's fair enough, but it also means that it's very difficult to get further public funding for the kind of fieldwork that my research has depended on during all these years. And private funding is quite unlikely. So even if I could have done further research, I must conclude now and conclude the extensive in-depth work and limit myself to small follow-up tasks. So hence, I thought I should summarize in an end book for all who contributed their insights and for those who who wish to benefit from them when moving on. So the aim of In Search of New Social Democracy is to answer the question why the classical social democratic vision about development based on social justice by democratic means has lost ground. In spite of the negative effects of global neoliberalism and the fading of the once so promising third wave of democracy, and if there are any openings, and you, you do this by defining social democracy inclusively in a historical perspective, and then you use it as a basis for interrogating findings from your 50 years of research on democracy and social rights movements in Indonesia, but also India and the Philippines, using your home country of Sweden, and to some extent South Africa and Brazil as, as further reference cases. I mean, this is quite an exercise, huh? Nonetheless, what then is novel and special about your answer to the question of the decline of social democracy? Well, that's a challenging point of departure. There is indeed rather broad agreement among leftists and critical analysts, for example, in Scandinavia, that mainstream social democrats have lost their way by adjusting to market-driven development. Hence, they argue there there must be a new focus on national so-called new deals, along with welfare reforms to regain the initiative, especially from neoconservative chauvinists. But, but actually, my results suggest that these critics are partially wrong by forgetting about internationalism and turning inward, focusing on national programs only. I think Thomas Piketty is right. One can't build social democracy in one country, especially not since the 1970s. But why since the 1970s in particular? Well, 
that's when the international monetary regulation was scrapped and when the efforts by social democrats like Willy Brandt and Olaf Palme to build a so-called new international economic order through partnership between North and South was refuted by international finance and the forces of neoliberalism, soon including leaders like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Moreover, we must remember that their reaction was possible much because the progressives in the South were not strong enough to put up a fight along with Brandt and Palmer for that new economic order. And the reason for that in turn, my book suggests, was that the activists in the South had deprioritized democratization during the Cold War and therefore failed to counter the capturing of the post-colonial states by rightist forces. Some progressives were literally eliminated, like Allende in Chile in 1973. But didn't it help that there was also what we call a third wave of democracy and that the Cold War subsequently came to an end? Yes, yes, you are right. These processes meant that there was a chance to alter the setbacks, particularly in the in the South. Mainstream social democrats tried alliances with liberals and The more radical friends tried to foster change from below through unions, civil society groups and social movements. So the main question in the book is why it was so difficult anyway to renew social democracy during the third wave, including in the cases that you have already mentioned. And based on these insights, I also ask if there are any new openings in the South and thus in the North too. Yet, isn't it so that many analysts, including those positioned on the left, argue that social democracy is simply not feasible in the South? Because the uneven and often extractive development, along with many informal laborers and weak unions, differs so fundamentally from the Industrial Revolution that enabled the rise of the social democratic labor movement, as we know it in the North. Yes, but also no. They are certainly right about the challenges, but I think they are wrong about the opportunities. In short, I think they are as wrong as the modernization school theorists who assumed that social, economic and political development in the South must come about exactly as in the North. If we analyze instead, as I've tried to do, the contextual political economy and movements and struggle in the South, it's clear that There are not just problems to build social democracy, but also new options. So, in other words, are you saying that the weakening of the progressives in the 50s, 60s, and also 70s after independence, I mean, in other words, the crumbling of the second anti-colonial wave of democracy and the rise of authoritarian capitalism, which also made it impossible to contain the rise of global neoliberalism and build a new international economic order in the 19. 70s. Are you saying that these obstacles were not inevitable, but could somehow have been avoided? Yes, that is really my first major conclusion. And I think it's particularly enlightening to compare Indonesia and the Indian state of Kerala in this respect. You know, in Kerala since the late 1920s, and in Indonesia during the main parts of the 1950s, it was possible for widely defined social democratic movements to build broad unity for equal civil and democratic political rights and, on the basis of that, to also struggle for social rights by democratic means over the years, including electoral victories. In Indonesia, however, these priorities changed in the late 1950s when left nationalists and communists 
supported the so-called guided democracy, which was imposed by President Sukarno and the Central Army leaders to, they say, strengthen the nation-state. They retained direct modern relations between state and citizens, but substituted populism and military governance for mediation by citizens' own organization and through multi-party elections. Worst, when in a few years later the military leaders found that they didn't have the sufficiently strong state apparatus and popular organization of their own to fight the leftists, in contrast to the Nazis in Europe. These generals gave up on the principle of direct state-citizen relations and reinvented instead the colonial combination of central despotism and indirect rule, mostly via religious anti-communist communities and militias. This is how they enforced what I would call a colonial-like genocide of in between 500,000 and a million people. When thus the left had been extinguished, later on, Saharto returned to direct authoritarian rule, but now with strict prohibition of independent popular organization. You know, for progressives, this was a dual failure. Firstly, the left nationalists and communists' support for guided democracy in Indonesia had meant that they could no longer build broad alliances based on equal civil and democratic rights to fight for comprehensive social reforms, such as land reform, contain state capture by ruling groups, which at that time often were called bureaucratic capitalists, and to resist the military use of central despotism and indirect rule and repression through religious and ethnic communities and militias. Secondly, on top of that, meanwhile, many Western-oriented social democrats and liberals had subscribed to what the American political scientist Samuel Huntington later on labeled politics of order. The argument there was that modernization and weak middle classes were not enough to later on build democracy. So there must also be a strong state from the very beginning. And if nobody else could build that strong state, the military had to intervene. So initially, these Western-oriented social democrats and liberals even supported the military and General Sohata, just as in Vietnam and later on in many so-called middle-class coups in Africa and Latin America, and of course much later on in, for example, Afghanistan. Both these strategies were as devastating as the Maoist attempts at armed peasant struggle. But, and this is the conclusion, these destructive strategies were not inevitable. There was a major exception, the leftists in Kerala. Socialists and communists in Kerala held on to the same priorities as the Indonesian progressives had adhered to before guided democracy. That is, to frame class and other demands for social rights under the unifying umbrella of quest for equal civil and democratic political rights. This has remained fundamental for the Kerala achievements until today. And I think it does remain a crucial lesson for everyone especially today when right-wing identity politics as well as authoritarian state-building are once again on the agenda. But didn't progressives regain the initiative later on with the third wave of democracy, including here the pink tide in Latin America, the victory of the ANC and Nelson Mandela in South Africa, and in Asia with the democratic people power revolutions against Marcos's dictatorship in the Philippines in, in 86, later on the fall of Suharto in Indonesia, and the flourishing also of the, the center-left in India in the early years of the 2000s. Yes, these were great advances, and, and we do need to acknowledge them, but we, we must also ask why they were not so 
sustainable and transformative, and if there are new options. This is the main task in the book, and there are five major conclusions. Firstly, the wave of democracy was never backed up by social democratic, economic, and social policies, and international support for that, as after the Second World War in North Europe which really made the difference there, as Sherry Bergman has shown so brilliantly in her book about democracy and dictatorship in Europe. So there was never a broad labor movement like in Europe. The result in the South was some industrial growth, but also plunder, increasing inequalities, poor work conditions, lots of people without job, lack of class-based organization and community, and constant difficulties to unify people with precarious work conditions. This generates discordant interests and priorities among ordinary people and weak progressive organizations. There is no doubt that there is a death of broad class-based collectivities. Temporarily employed workers and informal sector laborers tend to be neglected, as painfully confirmed even in the case of South Africa, where the ANC has tried to follow liberal social democratic and also Scandinavian Union prescriptions. Efforts at decent jobs and universal minimum wages, as suggested by the ILO, are fine. But there must also be policies to compensate for the lack of similar conditions as those in Scandinavia during the peak of social democracy, including rather low rate of unemployment. In short, broad interest-based collectivities can hardly be built only and mainly at the level of production but calls for common interest in comprehensive civil, political and social rights reform to rally behind. The second point is that democratization has remained elite-dominated and is fraying. Again, much because of the lack of inclusive social democratic development, as in North Europe after the Second World War. Thus, the old elites have also not done much to foster impartial governance. Even the left in West Bengal turned authoritarian and lost out. And something similar happened to the ANC in South Africa, which is losing ground. And the Philippines and Indonesia, which were celebrated as major examples of liberal democratization, have both backslided because the powerful elites have retained power and the new institutions have prevented pro-democrats from advancing and improving on democratization. Remarkably, it has to be admitted, moreover, that this has not been prevented, but instead actually supported by mainstream international pro-democracy aid, which have focused on cooperation among the elites on new rules of the game. And while military intervention, as in Afghanistan, made things even worse, popular protests, as during the Arab Spring, were short of organization and protection. To make things worse, Moreover, efforts to counter this with popular participation in local governance have been difficult to scale up, even in the most successful case of Kerala. Difficult to relate to other levels and actors. Hence, the chances remain slim for progressives to gain representation, to fight against corruption, and to even oversee implementation of the internationally celebrated Agenda 2030. Thirdly, equally disconcerting is that It has been next to impossible in Indonesia, India and the Philippines to make a difference in national governance by combining and scaling up scattered interests 
innovative unions and civil society groups and local practice. You know, bottom-up is simply not enough. This resonates with challenges for the more famous ANC in South African Workers' Party in Brazil too. At least we forget, for example, that the acclaimed participatory budgeting in Brazil didn't help to fight the corruption and abuse of power on the national level, especially in Brasilia, the capital. So these are the challenges or the problems, and they are, as you lay them out here, quite significant. But you said that there were also promising openings. Yes. The fourth conclusion in the book is that in spite of the problems of uniting people on the level of production, as well as of bringing various popular civil society groups together, it has proved possible to build broad alliances of progressive politicians, unions, other popular groups and civil society activists, including parts of media, in favor of comprehensive civil rights and transformative welfare and development reforms. For example, for acceptable urban development that consider the rural pool, equal rights to welfare, more jobs, better employment relations, plus non-corrupt provisioning. And democratic citizens' participation for this is is not just about fighting for the reforms, but also implementing and, and overseeing them. The best examples include, I think, the, the successful alliance a decade ago for Indonesia's public health reform, but also the left front's recent landslide victories in Kerala's elections on the basis of universal health and welfare measures in the struggle against COVID-19, along with efforts at knowledge-based sustainable development. If such comprehensive reforms are combined with democratic participation by the parties concerned, it is also possible to contain populism, such as Kerala has managed to do against India's chauvinist religious identity politics, as well as to fight corruption and strengthen democracy. Equally important, broad alliances for rights and welfare may, on top of it all, generate strong enough collectivities to negotiate the kind of social growth pacts that are crucial for social democratic development, but which have been unfeasible so far, except in authoritarian East Asian tigers, because of the shortage of similarly forceful and comprehensive labor and employers' organizations as in Northern Europe. This sounds promising, but in that case, why have we not seen more successful examples of this in practice? Well, the fifth conclusion is that the common major reasons may be summarized in terms of two political obstacles. One obstacle is the shortage not just one comprehensive reforms to rally behind, but whole series of them. So to continue to unite behind and, and make transformative by, by being designed to gradually strengthen popular capacity. You know, social democracy is not to smash capitalism by way of revolution or to dogmatically fight against markets, but instead about democratic struggle for transformative regulations and reforms that step-by-step can nourish democratic socialism in terms of as much social equity, equality and welfare as possible as a foundation for sustainable development. Now, the other obstacle is poor democratic representation when the alliances negotiate with employers and the governments. Direct negotiations between populist leaders and civil society and interest organizations are often promising but not institutionalized and made democratic. Rather, they tend to turn transactional, horse trade, 
and to make leaders like Indonesia's Jokowi much too powerful, which in turn is a fertile ground for strong right-wing populist leaders like Duterte in the Philippines. So if we turn to the subtitle of your book, what are the implications of this analysis for us who happen to be living in the North? Well, in a way, the answer is very simple. <laughs> Our international work, international cooperation, aid and all that, to support inclusive and sustainable development, as well as human rights and democracy and workers' organization, the struggle against corruption, all that should be redirected to foster the fundamental preconditions for it by giving top priority to the support for and cooperation with the kind of promising broad alliances that I pointed to, you know, between progressive politicians, unions and other popular groups and civil society. And they are alliances for equals civic rights and democratic welfare. And then they also must be help to fight the obstacles by supporting design and the anchoring of series of transformative reforms and formats for democratic partnership governance. It's simple like that. <laughs> and one could say that, in fact, we have had some historical experiences of our own of this in Scandinavia, from the old welfare and equality reforms and from the participation of interest organizations in, in design of implementation. Some of that has now faded away, but they may still be a source of inspiration if embedded in other contexts, of course, which, if I may add, calls for more contextual studies rather than the universal quantification of simplistic variables that is gaining ground in our universities. Ole Törnqvist, thank you so much for joining us today. And once again, congratulations on the publication of your end book, In Search of New Social Democracy, Insights from the South, Implications for the North, published by said Bloomsbury this fall. My name is Kenneth Bonilson and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.